engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Julia Ravey. In the show this week, have we just experienced the Earth's shortest day? How best before dates influence our decisions to chuck fresh food in the bin? And we hear of how technology is being used to perform medical procedures around the globe and on our doorstep. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. In the UK, we throw away about four and a half million tonnes of food every single year. And this is because of best before dates. A well-intentioned step to inform shoppers, but the one that regrettably fools consumers into thinking that food is unsafe when it's not. Now, supermarket Waitrose is joining the ranks of Marks and Spencers, the Co-op and Tesco's to help to combat the crisis by doing away with those dates on some food items. Earlier in the year, Morrisons did the same thing and they urged their customers to use a sniff test instead. Well, Julia has been rifling through her fridge to find out what she might otherwise have chucked away. So in my fridge at the minute, it's looking pretty barren the fridge isn't at its full capacity i need to do a shop actually but i was just having a look to see what produce i have in the fridge and the labels that are on that produce i have some apples in the fridge which i buy loose with these i'd still be definitely eating them i also have some oh my favorite fruit ever cherry tomatoes and these say best before the 2nd of august i'd still eat them and then i have some kale which also says 2nd of August. Now, kale, when it's over the best before date, it tastes a lot drier. And I don't know if that's a placebo effect of me seeing the date, but I normally like to eat kale before that best before date. And it's exactly this labelling that has been removed in Waitrose this week and in other supermarkets as well across the UK. The removal of labels isn't just random, it's actually based on scientific data. And this was acquired by the company RAP. I spoke to Estelle Herzenhorn, a special advisor at RAP, who told me some of the really shocking statistics around how much food waste we have in the UK. The average family throws away around £700 worth of food each year and wasting food feeds climate change So it's something that's really important to focus on. And what exactly are you looking at in order to help us reduce our food waste? There are three key things that can really help reduce household food waste. One, being able to buy more fruit and veg items loose. And that's important so we can buy the amount that we need. The second area is around removing date labels. So best before dates tend to be the date on fruit and veg, but there's no requirement to have those date labels on fruit and veg in the UK. And then the third action is around what we can do in our homes to get more of our fruit and veg stored in the right place so it stays fresher for longer. How do food labels influence our decisions to throw them away? So we did a whole tranche of work last year, which involved a whole range of different scientific studies and analysis. And one really interesting part of it was around the way that we interact with fruit and veg when there's a date label on it and when there isn't. 
And in those tests, we saw some really staggering results. So we showed people five different fruit and veg items that are quite often wasted in our homes. So we looked at apples, bananas, broccoli, cucumber and potatoes. And as part of the study, we showed 1500 people images of each of those items at various different stages of deterioration. So if you imagine a really green underripe banana, then through to like a super overripe black banana that you'd maybe use in a smoothie or the COVID popular banana bread. And then we showed people those same images, some with a date label on and some without. And the really staggering results we found was that the date label being there was having a much bigger impact on people's choices. When we showed people an image of a yellow banana, so perfect, when there was a date label on it, around a third of people said that they would throw that item away. Whereas when there wasn't a date label, that same image, only 3% of people said they would throw the item away. And that was the same when we looked at all the different fruit and veg items that we tested. We also looked at trying to better understand what the scale of impact would be on reducing food waste if we were to be able to get rid of those date labels. And what we've estimated is that around 50,000 tonnes, so that's 7 million shopping baskets worth of fruit and veg, could be saved from becoming waste in our homes if date labels were removed from fruit and veg. So it seems that we are quite heavily influenced by those date labels. So if we were to remove them and we had food without that best before on, are there ways in our homes that we can keep fruit and vegetables fresh for longer? Absolutely. Potatoes and apples lasted months longer, two months longer, if you store them in the fridge compared with in the fruit bowl or on the side. And broccoli, which is obviously a more perishable item, it's going to go off quicker than apples and potatoes. That lasted two weeks longer if it was stored in the fridge below five degrees, which is the magic number. So something we can all do to make our food stay fresher for longer is to put fruit and veg in our fridge. Keep those fruits and veggies cooler for a longer lifespan. And you can also trust your judgment rather than just the best before label there. That was Estelle Hersenhorn wrapping up some of their data on how to reduce food waste. Earlier this week, measurements made by the UK's National Physical Laboratory showed that the Earth was spinning faster. One day in June and another in July were over a millisecond and a half shorter than measurements made during the preceding decades. Now, this was widely reported as Earth's shortest day ever. But that isn't true, though, is it? Matt Bothwell, Cambridge University public astronomer. The Earth used to spin much faster in the past and it has been slowing down. These new readings just buck the trend of the last 50 years or so, don't they? Right, exactly. The uh, the Earth is about four and a half billion years old. And uh, so, yes, in the past, the Earth was spinning uh, a lot quicker than it is now. You wouldn't have to go back in time much more than a billion years or so to have days less than 20 hours long. So, yes, it's the, the shortest day for the last couple of hundred years, maybe. And why hitherto has the Earth's rate of rotation been slowing down? Well, it's something called tidal friction. Uh, so the moon's gravitational pull on the Earth um, is a bit uneven because the Earth is not a perfect sphere. So as, as Earth spins around, the moon's pull uh, causes this phenomenon which physicists call tidal friction, which tugs on the Earth and gently acts as a break on its rotation. Does that mean then that we're, we're giving some of Earth's rotational energy to the moon? 
Yes, exactly. Yes, the the system is losing energy, and so the moon is actually uh, the same effect. This tidal friction causes the moon to move away from the Earth. Uh, it's happening very slowly. It's about the same speed that your fingernails grow, but over very long periods, it would be noticeable. And that has had the effect of slowing down rotation, and therefore days have been lengthening over time. Yes, exactly. So we have a 24-hour day now. Um, in the past, around a billion years ago, our day was about 19 hours. I think go back another billion years, our day would have been about 14 hours. So yes, the Earth is getting slower and lazier with time, as we all do, I guess. Why then does it appear to have bucked the trend? Because the headline was the Earth suddenly speeding up. So where would it get the energy from to go from a slower speed to a faster speed again? It turns out that the answer is really complicated, and I think it's hard to narrow down one single explanation, because often when we think of the Earth spinning in space, we just think of like a a blue marble or something just rotating away. But the Earth has loads of complex internal structure. There's magma sloshing around the middle, and there's water sloshing around on the top, and all that can do funny things to the spin. So one potential explanation is that the melting of the polar ice caps is redistributing the weight away from the poles and towards the centre, and that might cause a slight increase. Uh, but there are lots of different things that can be causing this, so it's hard to narrow it, narrow it down to one. Is it a bit similar then, when one watches the ice skating or ballet and you have a dancer or an ice skater doing a pirouette one of the first things they do is they're they're turning in a big circle they've got their arms and legs out all over the place and then they pull them in to the center of their body and they all speed up and and that's because they're moving the mass instead of in a big circle they're moving it through a much smaller one so everything has to speed up could the earth be doing a, a similar sort of thing by redistributing the mass around itself you're not suddenly finding new energy it's just that you redistribute the spin and that speeds things up Yeah, exactly. That's one really good way to put it. Um, I had a physics professor in undergrad who used to do this memorable thing, uh, a bit like an ice skater, but he did it on a a spinning office chair with weights and he would spin himself around with the weights at arm's length and then bring them into his chest and fly around really fast. Uh, And yes, you're exactly right. As you redistribute weight around a system, uh, the rate of rotation can change and that's what we're seeing with the Earth. Um, it's worth saying that the this the, the increase in the day uh, sorry the increase in the rotation period is very small right it's uh, less than two milliseconds faster uh, than it was this time last year so it's a, a very minute increase. How did they actually pick that up, Matt? The Earth is under very careful monitoring, particularly from a series of radio telescopes all the way around the surface of the Earth, which talk to satellites, which very accurately map the Earth's surface to measure uh, the rotation. It's a technique called very long baseline interferometry that provide a very detailed look at what the surface is doing. What will be the consequences of us having a day that lasted 1.59 milliseconds less long than, (laughs) than we had been accustomed to then? Very little, to be honest. There's typically like a millisecond wobble uh, in the the Earth's rotation period anyway. It gets faster and slower over the course of a year by around a millisecond. So I think other than being quite a cool and interesting thing and a reason to talk about the rotation of the Earth, I don't think there's going to be any actual consequences. Because we have seen, I think the last time it happened was, was about five or six years ago, the addition of leap seconds to days in order to keep our clocks lined up. Does this mean we're going to start knocking time off again then to even things up? 
Well, some people have proposed that, yes. Yeah. So uh, you could take a second away um, if there are, you know, if there are multiple years in a row that have these millisecond, uh, you know, millisecond quicker days, then ultimately we might have to take a second away to catch up with things. Uh, some people are, are not very happy about this. I know Facebook uh, wrote <laughs> quite a frust- an article expressing their frustration at the idea of taking away seconds from the global time system i think it would irreversibly break the facebook codes and so uh, i think they were suggesting just to change the global timekeeping system rather than changing facebook's code matt bothwell there Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. The primary way for the farm pigs was really to nose the joystick up and down. We review the biggest releases. You can easily sit down, play it, switch off, a bit like Crash Bandicoot, but instead you're inside a horror movie. And because there's a simulator for almost anything, we play some of the strangest ones available. I'm kind of like dragging the pigs. The pigs are laying eggs and then coins are coming out of the eggs. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Julia Ravy. Still to come, a new way to make online video meetings a bit more tolerable and perhaps a bit more productive. Before that, though, a bit of admin. Starting this week, we're doing things a little bit differently. We've turned our usual one-hour podcast into two 30-minute shows. This one, coming out on Fridays, will bring you our science news roundup, hot off the press. The other one, out on Tuesdays as normal, is our deep dive look into an exciting scientific topic. This means you'll get a double dose of The Naked Scientist each week with more up-to-date news and hopefully it means you'll find the content you're looking for as easily as possible. Of course, everything is also freely available on our website at nakedscientist.com. And if you're not already a subscriber, do please be sure to sign up to the show wherever you get your podcasts so these episodes pop up on your phone as soon as they're published on a Friday and a Tuesday. Of course, we always welcome your thoughts, comments, feedback and questions. You can drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, though, robots are increasingly making their presence felt in the operating theatre. And this week we heard the heartwarming story of how two Siamese or conjoined twins linked at the head were successfully separated during a 27 hour long procedure by robotic surgery in Rio de Janeiro. Shortly, we're going to hear from surgeon Ben Lamb about how robots are also being used to reduce the duration of hospital stays a little bit closer to home than Rio at Addenbrooke's hospital in Cambridge. But first, on that operation to separate the twins in Brazil, this actually involved two teams, one based in the twins' native Brazil, the other at Great Ormond Street in London, and they worked together using virtual reality projections so that they could operate remotely. One of the surgeons, Nur Uwazi, said it was space-age stuff. Well, with us now is obstetrician and gynaecology consultant Mark Slack, who is also the founder of Cambridge-based Cambridge Medical Robots, whose technology can do similar sorts of things. Inspired by the surgery in Brazil, I wanted to know where, in his view, this field of robotic surgery is heading, beginning with whether anyone has actually physically operated on a patient from the other side of the world. Well, there was one done um, the day before 9-11 between Strasbourg and New York, but the company doing it laid a cable. So it's a bit of a publicity stunt. And of course, we've got the speed of light. And what you get is a lag. 
So if a surgeon is operating in London on a patient in Sydney, when they move their hand, there's a bit of a delay till you see the instrument move on the screen. So, but with you know 5G technology and, 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 and advanced, I'm sure we'll get there. But at the moment, what we've got is remote mentoring and remote looking after. So um, with my robot called Versius, when we did our first chest operation, because of the pandemic, our proctors and mentors couldn't travel. So the um, first chest case done in Germany was supervised by a surgeon in Middlesbrough in England. And over the course of the pandemic, we did uh, many, many more cases. And in the past, when you're learning a new procedure, um, you either had to get a surgeon come to your hospital or you had to travel to visit them. And that's enormously difficult, especially when they are so busy. And now, a, a, an enormous amount of Versius's introduction to new hospitals is supervised and mentored by a surgeon in another city or in another country. And we, in fact, have actually um, partnered with a British company to have, you know, we've actually now created the infrastructure. So when you buy our, our robot, you get with it all this remote mentoring um, stuff as well. So the, the point being that you're teaching people without actually having to be there. You don't have to fly people all, all the way around the world to sit in teaching sessions. You can teach them where you can see in virtual reality what they're seeing and Absol you can have a shared learning experience. Absolutely. So at the moment, we don't have that in virtual reality. We just have it on a screen. Virtual reality is in development. But but it's also worth mentioning when we train people, we train a very significant part now on virtual reality. So in the old days, if you wanted to learn a new robot, you'd have to go to the hospital and sit on one and practice. Um, you can now sit in your lounge at home with a VR headset and play to hand controls and practice all you want. N nevertheless, though, if you are conducting an operation in a remote part of the world, you, you can have mentoring for that surgery, presumably, by a surgeon who is in London watching what's going on in Brazil and they can see and, and almost experience what is happening to that patient and they can therefore give insight, they can give hints and tips. Absolutely and we've de we're developing ways of communication for them so they use the same terms and so on but it's you know a significant number of our new surgeons using the Versius robot for the first time are supervised by people in other countries and other cities. And, I mean, you said that the other people who did this laid a cable in order to, to make sure mm. there were no delays or jitter or anything. Do you think it is beyond the realms of possibility that we will be entering a realm where you do get surgery conducted by people who are not in the same room as the patient they're operating on? I think, I, I think, Chris, I think we will. The first step will be that the patient being operated on will have a competent surgeon in the theatre. But they may not have done the complexity, like the incredible case you just described at the beginning of the piece. And the other surgeon at the moment will just say, you shouldn't cut there or you should cut there. I think sooner than you will imagine, we'll have a situation where the surgeon will say, can I just take control for a few minutes and do the intricate bit and then hand it back to the surgeon on the ground. A bit like we do with aeroplanes. I Correct. Mean, there are ways of flying aircraft remotely, and it's probably not dissimilar then. Uh, it is, and the headsets are the one thing that's really made me see it potentially come true because then the two surgeons will be seeing exactly the same view. Um, the, yeah, know, it's not like looking over someone's shoulder and getting a, a slightly different view. You are seeing what they are seeing. Exactly, and, and so at the moment we're pretty close to that already, but the next stage will be saying, oh, can I just, can I just take control for a second and, and just give you a pointer? And then, you know, it just improves the quality of surgery and quality of training. And just briefly, is there a, an additional point here? Because if you take, say, cars as an example, cars can learn from how their driver 
responds to different road conditions and they share that learning with the whole fleet of cars electronically so the cars are better at doing their own collision avoidance and so on in future can your robot look what a surgeon does look what it thinks it should do and then think well he or she did it differently why did they do it differently there's a learning point there and and then share that knowledge you're reading my mind the next big thing in surgery standardization and every movement our robot does is measured and sent up to a cloud and we actually tested it recently whether we taught it to distinguish between a novice and an expert and it identified seven out of eight of both groups <laughs> and then we looked at the videos and the one novice was pretty amazing and the one expert wasn't so good and it wasn't Mark himself, you'll be relieved to hear. That was Mark Slack. He's the founder of Cambridge Medical Robots. As we mentioned just now, robots are also helping us cut down the times patients spend in hospital. Consultant urologist Ben Lamb has had some very encouraging results with this. So Ben, what have you been using robots to do? So we've been using robots for a number of years now to treat men with prostate cancer. And it's an operation where we remove the entire prostate with cancer-contained in the hope of curing them of the disease. What is the scale of this difference then, so when you're using the robot versus before? So traditionally, doing an open operation, so a big cut down the tummy for men with prostate cancer, patients could expect to be in hospital anywhere from five to seven days with a significant amount of blood loss and a pretty slow recovery with risk of complications. The use of robotics, which allows us to get right deep down inside the patient's pelvis, to the prostate, very carefully dissecting the prostate out and preserving the other good organs that you still need afterwards. It means that we consistently and reliably at Addenbrooke's now send patients home, usually within 24 hours of their surgery. They're up the same day as the operation, they're going home the following morning, the complication rates are much lower, the recovery is faster, back to family quicker, back to work quicker and getting back to normal life quicker. And at the minute, is this procedure done for every patient who needs the operation or is it sort of a case-by-case basis? I mean, the UK is lucky, actually. I think we have some of the highest rates in the world of robotic surgery for men with prostate cancer. And I think that's thanks to the organisation of cancer care in the NHS. So men in the UK can expect to, to have this technology in their treatment for prostate cancer. Um, I think what we've done at Addenbrooke's is to push this one step forward, use an enhanced recovery programme, training nurses using the day case unit to make sure that we can do this for 100% of patients, getting them all home the first day after surgery. That is brilliant and hopefully will be rolled out in other hospitals soon as well. Ben Lamb, thank you very much. What are video calls now? Something we've all got used to and a topic that we've covered previously on the programme. They're here to stay. So how do we get rid of some of the awkwardness that goes with them? Past research has shown that being tethered to our screens during video conferencing comes at a cognitive cost of idea creation because our anxieties of appearing rude or looking away from the screen tends to reduce our capacity to think freely. There are some suggestions that it might be better to turn the camera off altogether. But what if there was a way to overcome some of these negative aspects of online interaction and reap the benefits of non-verbal communication that are often lost in these virtual meetings? Well, that was the goal of Paul Hills and Daniel Richardson, who are both at UCL, and they've collaborated on a new study out in PLOS One this week that outlines the effectiveness of a set of Zoom gestures that you can use to enhance communication on your next meeting. James Titko heard first from Paul how he came up with the idea. 
I've always found meetings very troublesome anyway. And when we hit Zoom, it just seemed to me to get even worse. And I couldn't believe how quickly we descended into an acceptance of poor meetings. I, I just thought there's something in here around gestures. You know, we, we're talking about the not being not being able to read the body language in Zoom. Why don't we make the body language more obvious? Could I take a handful of these signals and just try them out? You probably only need about 10. And they kind of fall into two broad camps. One camp is a gesture that shows recognition that you're there and you're interested. And that could be the thumbs up or I could put my hand to my heart. Everyone can imagine me doing that to show you some kindness or empathy if you shared something with me. The other set really are around passing the conversation. And this hits the other big issue with Zoom calls, which is how do I know when it's my go to speak? And also thought of the analogy of, of the conversation being like a board in a team game. So if you watch a good team with the ball, they'll have their teammates looking to receive a pass. And that's the, that's the mindset I would encourage in a meeting. You know that I'm going to want to pass soon. So look to receive. And if you want to receive, give a big wave, a physical wave above your head. And that means please pass to me. And I'm not allowed to just stop. So I would have to say I now pass to James. I now pass to Daniel. You know, And as teams get used to it, if I pop my hands on top of each other in a kind of banging motion I'm, I'm saying I'm doing a build I'm actually saying to you pass to me because I want to build on your point and you'll probably like that you'll think oh well I will pass the board he wants to build if I scratch my head in a Laurel and Hardy type fashion I'm saying please pass to me I've got a question you've just said something I didn't understand and it would really help for me to go next so I can ask you my question and I saw Daniel wave there so I'm going to pass to Daniel I don't think of these as sort of as a vocabulary of signs Right. Because when we tell people about these, sometimes they say, oh, is it a bit like British Sign Language? How I think of them really is more like supercharged gestures. And what I do in my scientific world is sort of study how people interact face to face. And we look at eye contact. We look at timing. We look at all of these little things you like. Mm -hmm, uh -huh, mm -hmm. We call it back channeling. All of these things, we don't think of it as language, but it's absolutely vital for communication and interaction to happen. And the trouble is in Zoom, they just don't work. I completely relate to wanting to give that validation through nods and things over Zoom call. And I can already feel I'm part of the way there. I make them more exaggerated already. But this just gives you that extra push, I suppose. My sister's recently been at university. She's done her past couple of years a lot over Zoom. And she speaks of, of the horror of when the lecturer or the person in charge of the seminar says, right, guys, we're going to go into some breakout rooms to do some further discussion. And she says it's always a bit of an awkward experience. How did you go about proving that this would help to improve video calls? So we did a randomized uh, trial where we picked half of our students all gave them a 10 minute training. The other half did not. We, we measured them before. We measured them the after. We compared the sign group with the control group. And what we thought uh, was that, OK, maybe this will help with efficiency. Right. If all we cared about is how quickly could we reach an agreement, how quickly could we finish this task? The signs might help because there's less sort of awkward silences, less dithering. And we also measured just the symbol, the affiliation, just how much do I like these guys that I've been working with? How close to them do I feel? Do I feel similar to them? Do we have that social connection? And then also we had a more objective measure. We took the speech of what was said and we transcribed it all anonymously. And we had a computer just code it for positivity. So you can literally count the number of positive, negative words. So did I say, thank you for that, Paul? Or did I say, that was great, Paul. Thank you so much for that. Right? You can just count the language in a very uh, uh, objective manner. 
And what we found when we compared the people at the training with a randomly matched control group is that, yes, they were more efficient. They felt like they achieved tasks more quickly, but also they just liked each other more. They liked the experience. They felt closer as a group. And sure enough, they used more positive language and less negative language as a function of these things that are just making everything a little easier. So I'm just making a gesture to say I'd like to have it passed to me and I've got a new another perspective or another idea. And, and I think you can have brilliant discussions, very creative discussions on Zoom. I don't think it has to be a barrier, but you've got to have everyone in the game. Everyone's got to be there. They've got to listen. They've got to want to talk and they've got to know when they can talk. And I think it can be better than face to face. It doesn't have to be worse in any way. And I found it takes a while to implement. It's not you can't just sort of look at the science and think, right, we'll start using them tomorrow. It's a kind of habit changing thing. But if you get a team to commit to using them, and I usually say use them for five meetings and use them well. And then if you don't like them, you can drop them. But if if they're working for you, then choose to, to keep them going. Paul Hills and Daniel Richardson, they're both at UCL, talking about the gestures that they've developed and proven scientifically to improve video calls. And that's all we have time for this week. But tune into our next episode where we'll be looking into wildlife reintroductions. How can putting animals back into environments help protect them and restore balance to ecosystems? And what are the costs of doing this? We'll be back at the same time next week as well with more science news stories. Meanwhile, don't forget to check out our other Naked Scientist offerings, including Naked Astronomy, which is always worth a listen. And if you like what you hear here at the Naked Scientist and you can spare a few pence, do please consider becoming a donor or supporter of the programme. You can support us at nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravy. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.